he's misclassified someone as an independent contractor and they really should be an employee, well, then they can unionize. Also, then they can get overtime and minimum wage and, and a lot of other protections. So that is definitely a big thing. If you do use 1099 workers, if they're not properly classified, then there could be a huge amount of liability there. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. FurPaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of FurPaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes, email me at andrea at furpaws.us, or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. Hello again, Positive Leaders. It is so great to be back with all of you again. We're super, super excited to have an amazing guest today, David Miklas. He is the owner and operator of the law office of David Miklas in Florida. He is an employment law attorney, and he's going to tell you more about himself. But I asked David Miklas to come on the show because he was an amazing speaker at the Veterinary Hospital Manager Association, the VHMA conference this past year in Orlando with some amazingly hilarious, awesome, really great employment law insights. And he just told it like it was and told us all what we were doing wrong. And so it was awesome to have him on. So David, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So we have a tradition here at the Positive Leadership Podcast where we don't read stuffy bios. So will you just kind of run through who you are and where you've been and where you're at with our listeners? Sure. I am an employment attorney. I've been one for the last 23 years. I only represent Florida employers, never employees. So my perspective is only from the perspective of avoiding lawsuits and uh, defending them when you can't avoid them. What, what I've seen and what I've done for the last 23 years. Awesome. So we also always like to ask our guests kind of if you've come across either a recent or over the years, a favorite book or a podcast or like a continuing education course that you've attended or trained in that's really left a lasting effect on you. We love our listeners to hear these because a lot of times we get you know good reading recommendations, good audible list ads. So you've got one that's that's meaningful or something recent that you've come across that really impacted you. Sometimes I have to travel and I usually download podcasts for the travel and for the last 
four or five years, I've been listening to pretty much anything by Gary V. Vaynerchuk. And um, he's a big proponent of empathy and bringing your true self. And I try to emulate that in my social media posts. Now, if you hadn't heard of him, then you better mind your ears because he does tend to curse during his uh, uh, speeches and presentations. But uh, usually brings a unique look to whatever he's talking about. Yeah, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk is super awesome. I love his stuff. And yeah, he really, man, you know, for just living kind of a, I mean, he's like a gazillionaire and he owns companies, but like he's super down to earth. He just cuts right to it though, doesn't he? I mean, he just gets right at the heart of like what people are missing or what their crazy story they're making up and like how to deal with that. So yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, David. Yeah, this is great. David, thanks for coming on the show. I didn't pipe up earlier, but I really appreciate you coming on. I'm excited to chat with you. I have to say that um, when David and I were at the VHMA, we were talking about what sessions to go to. And he said you were he was going to your session. I'm like, okay, there's two I want to go to. I'm going to go to this other session. And so text me if he's good. And so David's texting me and he's like, oh my gosh, this attorney is amazing. I can't believe how good this guy is. We're going to have to have him on the podcast. So thank you for coming on. Sure. We're well, excited to have me. you on the show. Yeah, yeah, great. I'm happy to be here. So I am an SPHR. And with an SPHR, I have to do a ton of research on new laws that are coming down the pipeline. And I tell you, there are so many different things that I have to try to navigate through to try to figure out and decipher what of this affects veterinary medicine. And then if so, how? And if not, could it possibly somehow be related in the future or something like that. And boy, I'll tell you, it's a lot. Can you tell us what's new and coming down the pipeline in 2023 that we should be aware of? Sure. Probably the biggest thing, misclassifying employees as independent contractors. Uh, This is, frankly, it's been a problem for a while, but the Biden administration is really focused on this, frankly, because you've misclassified someone as an independent contractor and they really should be an employee. Well, then they can unionize. Also, then they can get overtime and minimum wage and, and a lot of other protections. So that is definitely a big thing. If you do use 1099 workers, um, if they're not properly classified, um, then there could be a huge amount of liability there. You know what, David? You just hit a sore spot for veterinary medicine. Let me tell you, we screw this up royally. So I want to dig into this a little bit with you. If you don't mind, like, let's get some nitty gritty here going on. Okay. So first of all, I want to put the disclaimer out to our listeners today that David is a, this is all our discussion today with David is going to be federal. Nothing is going to be on the state level. Because we have a lot of listeners here that are from different states, and I am from California, and let me tell you, our states are way different than most other states. So let's just say that right here, right now. If you are from California, you probably, <laughs> you probably gonna be like, oh, we can't do that here because we're crazy here. But David, talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier with the independent contractors. Now there was the traditional way to classify independent contractors. Well, there's a couple different ways, depends on which part of the government is looking at you. But at the end of the day, the Department of Labor has a test, pretty much been the same test for the last 70 years. Uh, You've heard about it in the news because there's a very, very small sliver of time that it changes right at the end of the Trump administration that he's proposing changing the test from a a six-factor test to a five-factor test and putting a lot of emphasis on two of those factors. And there's some fighting back and forth. But at the end of the day, it went into effect, but really nobody's been using it. Courts haven't really used it. The Department of Labor absolutely doesn't use it. And now they've come out with notice of proposed rulemaking uh, about a month ago. It's not actually uh, 
you know, a rule yet, but it, it probably will come out pretty close to what they've uh, proposed. But really, it still relies on the economic reality test. That's the same test that it's been for 70 years. So don't think, okay, well, there's really no big change. Most employers have screwed this up. I'd say probably half of the calls that I get where someone yes. classifies people as, a, as an independent contractor, they probably have a misclassified because they think, oh, all I have to do is, um, you know, have them sign this independent contractor agreement and then poof, they're an independent contractor. No. And that, that is not the way that, that this works. You, you actually have to meet, the worker has to meet. It's not all the six factors. The way I describe it is you think you have two buckets and one bucket is an independent contractor bucket and the other bucket is an employee bucket. So you're going to have six factors. And depending on what your answer is to each of the factors, like you have a, a drop of water and that water has to go in one of those two buckets. So you want the most drops as possible in the independent contractor bucket because you're never going to get all of them in there. But the more drops you can get in there, the better. So that's where you have to go through the test. And, and frankly, it's not that easy of a test. You really have to go through it probably with a lawyer, or at least an experienced employment or human resource professional that you know has experience going through that test because a lot of people don't get it right. Yeah, so the new test was called the ABC rules, ABC well, law, well, the ABC well, that, test. Yeah, that's out of California. It, it is extremely difficult in California to have anyone qualify as an independent contractor. Okay, so here I go talk about California. And, and uh, you know, I just said I was going to. You, I didn't no. even realize that was California. I know, right? Yeah, no, no. So tell us about the traditional one then. What's it called? I can't remember the, the name of it. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's the economic realities test. And it's yes. the one that the Department of Labor has used for many years. Sometimes they add in a seventh factor depending on which court is analyzing it. But a lot of the times, the main factor that you keep hearing about is control. But there are a bunch of other factors. And so is that right. going to be changing, you think, in 2023, or we just need to be conscientious of, like, make sure we're doing this right? Well, it's a Democratic board, so it's much more employee-friendly, so it's going to be a lot harder to, to have people qualify as, as independent contractors than before. But applying the test is pretty much going to be the same. They've tightened up a couple things, mainly dealing with, like, Uber and Lyft. Those companies will be extremely difficult for mm-hmm. them to ever qualify as independent contractors, whereas now... Some courts in the country say they are, some other ones don't. Pretty much in California, probably 5% of people <laughs> that try to be independent contractors might actually yeah. qualify. Right, right. exactly. In the country, maybe 50% can qualify. Right. Yeah, if you're in California, it is extremely difficult. Pretty much, it, and I'm not going to profess to, to be able to tell you what California law is because I'm not a California attorney, but for the rest of the country, you can actually have independent contractors. California, my understanding is that you pretty much have to do things other than what the business is set up to do. Um, so mm-hmm. for instance, if you're a doctor, a doctor's office, you can't have a doctor's there. Lawyers can't have a lawyer as an independent contractor. Accountant firm can't have accountants as independent contractors. But yeah, you can have the lawn guy be the independent contractor. You can have sometimes the IT person who just fixes the computers at your veterinary office be, the, uh, be an independent contractor. It gets right. a little bit dicey when... You're talking about maybe, you know, a radiologist or, you know, something like that where someone comes in, perform a service for your organization, and then they leave. You really have to not be paying them by the hour. You really don't give them any kind of supervision. You don't reprimand them. You don't give them an evaluation. They don't get the employee handbook. Those are things you do for your employees. The independent contractor, on the other hand, they usually come in, perform a service, and then they send you a bill, you know, an invoice, and you pay the invoice. You don't pay that based on the hours. It's just, you know, based on, okay, I came out here, performed this service, it's $500, and then, you know, you pay, pay the bill. 
I have a question, Go which ahead, is David. like, you know, I think a lot of times we think, and I'm, you know, throwing myself under the bus, not admitting that I've ever done this, right? But uh-huh. uh, think that, oh, I've got a contract, so therefore I'm protected. So let me ask you this, like, okay, so a kennel assistant, right, who, let's just make clear, is very clearly an employee hourly job, but comes to you, you know, hired and says, hey, you know, my other job used to pay me by the day or by the month or something, you know, can we work something out? And me as an employer says, yeah, I've got this independent contractor agreement and I give it to the kennel kid, kennel kennel person, and they sign it and I pay them 1099, no payroll taxes removed. They don't have any employee protections. I'm protected, right, David? Because there's a contract in place. Yeah, yeah I'm kidding, but like not. I'm being facetious, but yeah. yeah no. <laughs> I'm not going to say that a contract is useless because it's useful for one of those drops in the bucket to show that the parties intended for the arrangement to be an independent contractor arrangement. That being said, and the IRS can investigate or the Department of Revenue can investigate or the Department of Labor can investigate. Where I focus is, is the Department of Labor. When mm-hmm. the investigators come in and look at this stuff, they don't even look at the contract usually. Now, lawyers will use it as a defense, but at the end of the day, they're going to be interviewing witnesses and they'll interview the person, the worker. And usually the problem is the worker mm-hmm. files for unemployment. And then you say, well, nope, nope, you don't get unemployment because you weren't an employee. You're an independent contractor. And then they're challenging that. And then you know, during that investigation, you know, the issue would be, well, let's, let's talk about how you got paid. Let's talk about what you did and, and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And that's where you, the, you're going to go through the factors. And piece of paper doesn't mean anything. Now, when I draft an independent contractor agreement for my clients, I will go through all those factors. And after interviewing the business owner or the HR person for 20, 30 minutes, if I don't think that they're going to meet this, then I, I just won't draft it. Now, if you go online, you can download it and you can fill in whatever you want. And that's the reason that these things don't matter because the facts are, are what really is going to matter. So if the facts line up, then I try and draft the, the contract, you know, to, to actually bring up the specifics that that are in play for this particular mm-hmm. person. Like for instance, if, if they have their own business cards, if they work for competitors, those are all good factors. So if you have someone who's 1099 and you make them sign a non-compete agreement, those two aren't consistent. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, usually if someone signs a non-compete agreement, yeah, they're not going to be an just because they're an employee. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So let me ask you this: like on the employer side, like and us thinking in that vein, could an employee bring a like a misclassification suit and claim that an employer coerced them into signing an independent contractor agreement? And right. whether or not that's true, but like, is that sometimes where an employee goes? Because the theory is that the default is in, you know, is an employer relationship. So like, for example, if I'm a good, honest, hardworking boss, and as I said earlier in that instance with like the kennel guy says, hey, you know, like I was a pool guy before and they, you know, they paid me a hundred dollars a day or whatever. And I say, yeah. And then I sign it, whatever. And then he goes, we shouldn't say quit, right? Because he's an independent contractor. He goes Uh off, he does whatever, he stops working. And then he, all of a sudden I end up with a misclassification suit. And then he says, well, they told me I had to sign this to work. Is that something you've seen before? Or is that something that employees will threaten or like say that happened when in fact may or may not have happened? Yeah, actually the coercion part, I rarely see something like that happen. It doesn't really matter. The parties can both want it to be an independent contractor arrangement. But at some point, the government's going to come in and investigate on its own, maybe due to a complaint. Mm -hmm. Or maybe this particular worker is complaining. At the end of the day, if you're investigated, it's the business's burden to prove. Mm-hmm. Because and a lot of people may not have noticed what you said, David, but the default is everyone is an employee unless the business can prove otherwise. So the burden is on the business to prove otherwise. Mm-hmm. And if it's a gray area, then it may not be worth the risk. The, the safe thing is always gotcha. to classify everyone as an employee because if you misclassify them, 
they can go back two or sometimes three years. Mm-hmm. And usually if they're an independent contractor, you probably don't have a punch in the clock. So you have no idea how many hours they spent. So mm-hmm. Usually what will happen, they'll say, hey, you know what? I worked 60 hours every week for the last two, two years. You don't have any payroll records to show otherwise. So if the government determines, you know what? We think you've misclassified them. Then you're looking at a whole bunch of back pay plus liquidity mm-hmm. damages. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a big mess. The safest thing, yeah. unless you get pretty much the approval from an employment lawyer that this legitimately is an independent contractor, the safest thing really is to just assume that they're an employee and pay mm-hmm. them accordingly. So yeah, I want to reiterate one more point that you made, because I think it's also something that isn't clear that I think we have to shout from the rooftops, which is, and I've heard this before, and I think I may have either been in your session or just other employment law sessions where you guys will take questions from the audience. And they'll say something like, my employee wanted this arrangement. They wanted to be an independent contractor. And you just made the point. It's not, you know, the employee doesn't get to decide. The burden is on the employer. And guys, meaning listeners of the podcast, we will get screwed because it's not really our decision either. It's the government's decision when they figure out if there is a case brought. And we can probably get on the stand and say, but they wanted to. And the court's going to say, no, it was your job to classify them correctly. So like, yeah. it's not the employee's choice. We decide whether or not right. we want to take that road with it, them, the right? Way, the way the government views it is they're always looking for money. And if they're missing out on tax money, they're not happy about that. They're going to try and figure out every way possible to get more tax money. So yeah. what happens is if someone's a, an independent contractor, the worker themselves is responsible for reporting their own tax to the government. That mm-hmm. doesn't always happen. The government knows that, and you know they're missing out on money. So they want as many people as possible to be employees because then the business has to report, and, and you also have to match. You know the fight and all that kind of stuff. You know there's matching. So the best way that the government can you know have as much money as possible for taxes is to have as many employees as possible. That makes sense. Yeah. So as we kind of pivot here, you know we don't get too political on the show, but I do think that politics and the law is really interesting. And again, guys, the listeners, this is not who's right or wrong or who's a better choice for office or any of that stuff. But we're in the midterms. And so, you know, David, from a lawyer's perspective, when an administration shifts, so let's say, theoretically, Biden, you know, I don't know if he's going to run again, or we don't know yet, right? But let's say he does or doesn't or whatever. And we end up with a republic. Well, actually, if you could address both. So what does a Democratic president typically do for labor law, like we're talking about now? I know that labor sometimes is used interchangeably. And also on the flip side, what do Republican presidents often do so that our managers can actually look at politics and actually start to have some defensive measures when they see administration changes happen? Sure. There's no denying elections have consequences. Traditionally, especially in the last couple cycles, Democratic administrations tend to be much more pro-employee and therefore anti-employer. And I don't want to say anti-employer, but the, it costs employers a lot more to do business under a Democratic uh, administration, whereas Republicans tend to be more pro-business. They tend to be a lot looser. Like, for instance, under the Trump administration, I've resolved multiple Department of Labor investigations. Usually. It's just been whatever the back wages are. Under Obama and under Biden, they have marching orders, even though they, they always can seek liquidated damages. Under Obama and under Biden, they, they always will seek them. That's the default. So that means it's basically twice as expensive to resolve a case under a Democratic administration as opposed to under a Republican administration. So oh, wow. If you're on the hook for not paying workers right yeah, for wow. $25,000, oh, wow. it all of a sudden becomes $50,000. You really screwed up, then you know instead of maybe seventy five thousand dollars, try and double that. I mean, that could put a business out, you know, completely out of business. 
Yeah, you're right. So there really are tangible consequences uh, when it comes to, you know, who's in office and what the laws are. Like right now we're seeing very, very pro-employee situation with the National Labor Relations Board also. And, you know, if we get into that, I could talk about that all. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to turn it over to Andrea, but I wonder if maybe, again, this podcast can go all sorts of ways. I wonder if we should talk a little bit maybe towards the end or something, a couple minutes about unions and some of the changes. You know, we do have a veterinary union, a veterinary professionals union. Yeah. There's not many, but there are a handful of hospitals handful, that have yeah. unionized. And so, you know, listeners, you know, if you it's work... It's interesting that you're talking about yeah. unions. The National Labor Relations Board, a lot of people assume it only applies for unionized workplaces, and that's not the case. It really applies to almost every private company in America. So pretty much anyone listening to this podcast has to comply with the National Labor Relations Act. And that means, and this is one of the big mistakes. I know that, you know, one of the things I think you're going to be asking me are are some common mistakes that veterinary practices make on a regular basis. One of those things tends to be, you know, being too cheap and just Googling and downloading documents, you know, like employment agreements or offer letters or independent contractor agreements. The things I always see is an employee handbook that has language that says you're not allowed to discuss your wages. That, oh, you're speaking my language now, yeah, David. Yeah, Let it rip a, for a second. It's Amen. It's a very clear violation. It's a, it's a per se violation of the National Labor Relations Act. Yes. You're not allowed to prohibit your employees from discussing terms and conditions of employment. And wages clearly fall within there. And they're allowed to talk about these things and complain about them, even concertedly. That, and that's the key thing. Um, they're allowed basically to get themselves worked up and discuss, hey, should we get a union here? Even if it doesn't rise to the level of should we get a union here, they're allowed to complain. They can go on social media and say, I'm sick of working here. We only make $11 an hour and I can't live on that. And of course, the employer doesn't like that. But if you go out and fire them for that, that's almost always going to be a National Labor Relations Act violation. Yeah, 100%. So David, you said it just a second ago, but Talk to us a little bit about a few common mistakes that we make on a regular basis that get us into hot water legally. You sure. mentioned one already, you know, Googling documents and not going through the proper channel on certain things like, you know, compensation agreements or contracts or I think one of the handbooks. Things, yeah, one of the biggest things I see is where a practice manager or the business owner themselves will think, hey, you know what? This is employment at will. I can fire for any reason or no reason at all. And then they fire the pregnant woman or they fire the disabled guy, you know, whatever. And the reality is employment at will, which the vast majority of America is, but employment at will means that you can fire someone at the will of the employer so long as it's not an illegal reason, which means discriminatory or retaliatory. So most of the federal laws kick in at 15 employees, but but a lot of different states and localities drop that number down. But let's just say, for example, you have 20, 25 employees. So all of a sudden you are covered by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Once you hit 20 employees, then you're covered by the ADEA, which is the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. So that means you can get sued for discrimination based on race, gender, sex, you know, all that kind of stuff, and as well as age discrimination or disability discrimination. So these are the kinds of things where, you know, yes, you can fire Susie, but if Susie had just complained about race discrimination, it's probably going to look like retaliation. And then you may have to deal with an EEOC charge on that. So these are the kinds of things that, yeah, you can fire pretty much anyone you want, but you really need to still look at, yeah, did tread something with recently happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did they trip and fall and have a workers' comp claim? Yeah. If so, then it's probably going to be a workers' comp retaliation lawsuit coming. 
Yeah. One of the best pieces of advice I had ever heard from an employment attorney way back when was being able to, if you're going to fire somebody, let's say, is have a record of that prior to the termination, which means like the second you talk about termination is to email yourself or email your boss or their supervisor or something and say, hey, listen, we're going to be terminating, you know, Susie next Tuesday, blah, blah, blah. And then if Susie comes in on Monday and says, hey, I'm pregnant or hey, I tripped and fell or hey, I I don't know, whatever, right? Then you have it on record to say, whoa, 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 we are planning on terminating her last Friday when we talked about it. Whatever she came in and told us on Tuesday or Monday before we fired her on Tuesday has nothing to do with it. And I thought, oh, wow, I've never done that. So I have started covering my patukas that way of saying, hey, the second we know this is happening, we are going to put this in writing somewhere, some way where is a a date time stamp that says, this is our action that's going to be next. I advise all my clients that sometimes they'll call me and say, hey, Dave, we're thinking of firing someone and, you know, let's talk it through, but we're not going to fire them today. We're going to wait till whatever. So if they're not going to fire them that day, then the first thing I say while I'm on the phone with them is, okay, as soon as we hang up, I want... You to email, you know, assuming there's two people yeah, on the phone, right. email someone else, top of the organization, in light of today's conversation, you know, I'm recommending we terminate, you know, Susie for insubordination or for poor performance or whatever it is, some obviously legitimate business reason, because if Susie trips and falls or comes in and gets, says, hey, guess what, I'm pregnant, you know, the next day or two days later, you're really, really, really going to want to be able to point back, listen, we already made this decision, you know, on yes. Wednesday. Yeah. Well, how do you prove that? You have to have something in writing somewhere to prove it. That's a really great point. So I just want to like summarize real quick, guys, because we have really a great three. One is probably don't do a lot of independent contractor classifications, or if you do run a plus an employment attorney, you know, make sure that they're vetting out which type of, I don't want to say position, which type of, you know, worker, person, whatever you want to call it, that's coming in would truly classify as an IC. Second of all, don't go Googling employee handbooks or Googling salary agreements or, you know, different things that are true legal documents that can have repercussions. And the third one is, and I love the way you said this, David, is that, you know, at will is, you know, essentially like you operate at the will of the employer, except for, right? Or or yep. as long as X, Y, Z are not happening. And I think that's a good way to, to preface at will employment, because you're right, there's still this push and pull of there's some very savvy business managers and HR and owners that are like, when we terminate somebody, we check all the boxes, make sure that don't have any risks and et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of other people that just say on a whim, you know, you work for me and you're fired, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, they just violated a bunch of different issues. So it's like, yeah, well, it's true, except for some other major issues. So that makes a lot of sense. So I want to pivot a little bit to like talking about how your services, like as a lawyer can really support a business. And I think, you know, Andrea and I, obviously we're not lawyers, but we work with a lot of them and have been trained by a lot and have worked, you know, on things with them and obviously believe in the value of having one, especially here in California, obviously very important. And what I think a lot of people don't realize, and I don't know if you offer this service, but a lot of employment lawyers do, is that it's almost like pay for hire. You can pay somebody directly to create a handbook for you. You know, you can pay per email. And so you can have almost like a retainer, you know, you might put some money down, but then, you know, and then you can send emails and call and check and it's just drawn off. And that's such an important thing. Um, And I've talked to, I don't know, you know, 20 or 30 employment notorities in California that offer that service. And so it's, it's like having your own HR line, like it's really, really helpful. And you guys get, you know, you get paid for that service, but it's kind of the idea of like, we don't have to just call you when we have a case, right? Like we can be proactive about it. So how can managers kind of integrate having better employment practices so they don't really need to necessarily call you up when they have a lawsuit sitting on their desk? What are some things they can do proactively to offset that? I think training is the biggest thing. Obviously, if you don't get training, then you don't know what the danger areas are. 
So my big thing is the best way to prevent lawsuits is, is to have the managers receive regular training. For instance, I provide certain trainings, but you really you can get this anywhere. But for instance, some of the kind of trainings I provide, Florida employers are training on civility or avoiding hostile work environments. Also, I give separate trainings on how to properly discipline. And many managers have never received training on how to manage employees, how to write them up. So those are really important things to do, and that can prevent a lot of problems. Now, biggest thing I always tell businesses is make sure you have some kind of budget to run things by legal when you do have that, because not consulting an employment lawyer or at least HR is going to be a big problem. So not understanding that HR is much more than payroll and benefits is a big issue. HR should be attending seminars. They should have a budget to call legal. For example, many issues can be run by a lawyer for $100 or $200, you know, maybe a 5 or 10, 15-minute phone call. But if you wait later and you have to call the lawyer later after you have an EEOC investigation or Department of Labor investigation or you got a demand letter, most employment lawyers won't touch that for less than a certain amount, maybe $5,000. You know, EEOC charge for handling that, defending that, it's very time-consuming, and there's a lot of work that goes involved with it. Same thing with the NLRB investigation, same thing with the Department of Labor investigation, demand, even the demand letter threatening a lawsuit. Even if you can get that worked out very quickly in you know short t- period of time, it's still a decent amount of work that it's still going to run up thousands of dollars in your own attorney's fees. So if you can avoid that kind of stuff, the riskiest thing is when you fire someone. So if you're about to fire someone and you're not 100% sure pick up the phone and run by your employment attorney and at least you'll sleep better at night. And, you know, that usually will prevent the vast majority of problems. Yeah. And David, what I hear you saying is that I feel like sometimes when we say as practice managers, do you have an employment attorney on file? And they usually kind of shrink back and cringe and they'll say like, oh gosh, I don't know, or they're so expensive, or I handle it myself. And I, of course I cringe in return. But I think what you kind of hit on was they don't have to all be expensive in the sense of it saves you money in the long run to have the 15 minute conversation that cost you a couple hundred bucks, right? Yeah. It's honestly worth it. I was sitting at my desk, getting ready for this podcast, and I wasn't even sure I was going to take the call because it was so close to the podcast, but I took it. I was able to give the advice in five minutes is about, you know, medical marijuana and they're firing someone based on this. And, you know, it took me five minutes of time. I'm not even going to charge this client for, for that phone call. But even if I did, it wouldn't fit less than 50 bucks, yeah. obviously. So something right. like that. I mean, sometimes yeah, the peace of mind is worth it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, right. For if, sure. If, if they got a demand letter, I don't touch those for less than a couple thousand dollars. So, you know, it's yeah. crazy not to run stuff by your employment attorney, especially when it's risky. Yeah. It's so beneficial just to, you know, pick up the phone and call. The other thing I'd like to circle back to, as you say, for, you know, us managers in order to get some training. And so, you know, I have to do like, I don't know, godly amount of CE every year, something like 60 hours or something. So I'm constantly eating up um, any type of CE seminar I can get my hands on, especially here in our state, because things change so fast. But one of the things I love is having newsletters that come from attorneys' offices because they'll have really good summaries in their newsletters that say, hey, like this is what's coming down or hey, we have this seminar coming up soon. Um, A lot of the cities will also have employment seminars that are like six hours of, you know, employment law coming your way and we'll serve you breakfast and it's 80 bucks for the day or something like that. 
So what are some of the important type of training that we should be getting as managers? My best piece of advice for, for a practice manager is to invest in at least going to your local HR association. Because, I mean, you can join the National Sherm Society for Human Resource Managers. It's like 200 bucks for the year. A lot of the local chapters let you in for free once you're a Sherm member. Sometimes you pay 20 bucks for lunch or whatever. But almost every meeting, they bring in someone like me or like a benefit speaker. Yeah, or fantastic. Every, yeah. every month, you're, you're hearing from someone else. And, you know, my gosh, for, for $20 lunch, here's $1,000 worth of free information. It really is, is pretty amazing. That's really the cheapest way. But I mean, you certainly can, you know, go to any of the online places. Bamboo gives a ton of Yeah, I just HR. did the Bamboo yeah. yesterday. And yeah, they did a two-day one that was great. Yeah, it was free. I know. I loved it. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I love that you said Sherm. Sherm is great. I'm a member. I've been a member for a very long time. Sherm is fantastic. And then our local chapter, our Pyra, P-H-I-R-A, our Pyra chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then I was going to say Bamboo. So yeah, thanks for those few. I think those are important things for our listeners to be able to kind of grasp onto and bite into as far as getting their teeth into some good quality CE. So David, we always like to leave our listeners with a couple of just really actionable items. So we record these typically on Fridays, we release them on Wednesdays. So our listeners obviously will listen whatever day they listen to, but we kind of usually like to use the moniker of Thursday morning at 8am, the hospital manager or practice owner walks in the door what are one or two really good action items that they can essentially tackle tomorrow morning and Saturday for all of us, but you know, Monday morning at 8 a.m. to be better compliant and legally protected? Yeah, I'll give you two. One, if you have anything in writing that says employees are not allowed to discuss their wages, immediately remove that. Change that right now. That's a very quick thing that can be done and rolled out immediately. The second thing is if you don't already have an employee handbook, get one. Don't download it for free. Don't borrow one from another business. Sometimes people get these things and they have all kinds of language. First of all, that's illegal. Some other times it applies for a public employer, not a private employer. Sometimes it was actually language that was negotiated by a union. There's all kinds of problems when you try and download stuff like that off the internet. Experienced HR consultants can provide that for you. Employment lawyers can provide that for you. There's all different kinds of costs. Just to give you a ballpark, I provide that in Florida for a flat fee of $1,600. But it's very common to pay $2,500. Listen, 10 years ago, those could cost $5,000, $7,000. So there's no reason to pay that kind of money for it nowadays. But if you're paying 50 bucks, that's usually going to be a bad idea. Love it. Love it. Love it. I can't like say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> I would love to ask for one piece of advice from you that you feel like is valuable, whether it has something to do with employment law or not. David, what could you tell our listeners that you think is super valuable? I think preventative mindset means working collaboratively with legal counsel. If you wait until there's a demand letter or a lawsuit, at that point, your employment lawyer is only running defense. There's only so much that that can be done at that point. You can't change the facts. You can't finesse them. So for instance, if you have an employee who is disabled, or maybe you think what they're saying might be a disability, instead of just saying no when they ask for an accommodation, that's the time to pick up the phone call and, and run it by, you know, an employment lawyer to see, you know, what really do we have to do in this situation? And maybe you don't legally have to do something, but you still may get a good idea like, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, that's pretty easy. We can do that. And then you don't lose an employee. They don't sue you. They don't have to quit. You don't have to fire them. And there's a lot of ways to keep everyone still working and happy 
and, and even if it's not a legal obligation, but sometimes even if it is a legal obligation, work collaboratively before it becomes a blow up huge problem. Especially right now when employees are hard to come by. So <laughs> yeah, so sought after, right? They're worth their weight in gold and I think having that interactive conversation and really trying to think of it through their eyes and through their lens and what can we do to salvage the relationship or make sure it's not broken in the first place, right? So right. yeah, thank you. So David, we've all had these encounters where there was a point in time where, you know, like your jaw hits the ground, your palm smacks your forehead, eyes pop out of your head like a pug and you're like, no freaking way this just happened. Like you totally can't make this shit up. Maybe it has to do with like being in a courtroom or yeah, working with a veterinary practice where you're like, I can't believe they're in this situation. Um, Tell us about a time where you were just completely awestruck and like, no way this happened. Honestly, what you just described happens to me on a weekly basis. But let me just give you a recent one that I, I really had. A new client called me because the Department of Labor showed up and started asking for documents. It turns out that they really had a lot of problems. The more that I peeled back, you know, the more problems that I realized that they had. They actually created a scheme whereby an applicant was chosen to be hired, and then they, the business gave them the I-9 form. The applicant was unable to fill it out because they were not legal. They were undocumented. So instead of the business saying, sorry, you can't work for us, they created a scheme whereby they helped the person set up a corporation and then called them an independent contractor. The problem is they didn't meet the requirements to be an IC, and just setting up a company isn't enough, just signing an IC agreement isn't enough. They paid the workers by the hour, they trained the workers, they monitored and corrected the workers' performance, they paid them on the same day payroll was processed for the employees, they mixed the 1099 with the W-2 on the payroll records, it was a fiasco. Um, oh my gosh, they, what a mess. And they did this with, with 80 employees. That, so, I mean, oh my very God. expensive. No way. Yeah, yes. That's like maniacal. Bad. Well, oh it, my gosh. We were just talking. It's really, really hard to get employees now. So they said, well, you know, we're, we have a bunch of applicants. We, we're not going to pass what? up on them. Well, guess what? They should have because it's an extremely expensive mistake that they made. Yeah, I would say wow. so. Oh my goodness. Wow. Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, it just goes to show you when, when unfortunately different markets get squeezed, i.e. employers get squeezed, they come up with some real shady stuff. To- uh, right. We yep. think outside the box. Oh my gosh. They created like a, outside like a law. pyramid scheme, essentially. Of oh like my gosh. Fake businesses and shell well, companies. You know, you, and Oh my gosh. If you don't God. have the paperwork to work here, then, you know, if you're an IC, then you don't have to have a social, you don't right. need, you know, right. all that I mean, kind of stuff. Yeah. You don't have yeah. that Jeez. You got to hand it to their ingenuity. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's creative. Like with, uh, with legal Zoom and stuff, they probably just set up a bunch of Cray LLCs on legal Zoom, right? And just, that yeah, is crazy. I, I didn't get into all the details of how they did it because yeah. I don't want any of my clients replicating that. <laughs> right. No, no. Let's not give yeah, them the tools. You, you don't want to get yeah. to that mess again. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody might go, ooh, that sounds interesting, you know. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. 
Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. This was a case involving a firefighter that was caught looking at porn in the firehouse. They went to arbitration. The arbitrator said that the fire district did not have just cause to terminate the worker because they did not specifically have a policy saying that you cannot look at porn in the workplace. Tell me about your proudest moment. Obviously, the birth of my, my twin daughters. But if it's something to do with my business, then probably winning a trial where we fired an employee who was a teacher who had a side business where he was operating a puppy mill, and then he lied about it. Why do you enjoy working with veterinary hospitals? What do you enjoy about working on the law side for our profession? I'm an animal lover. My wife is too. We've had a lot of dogs, a lot of cats, hedgehogs, all kinds of animals. So just kind of giving back. Self-care, how do you practice it? How do you decompress? I leave the office at 3 p.m. on Fridays, except for today. And I always go on at least one annual vacation, and I try to never work on weekends. And so how do you also balance work and life? I assume as a lawyer, you're kind of on 24-7. How do you balance the two, and do you experience any like work guilt when you're not in the office? Well, sometimes there are emergencies, but usually I try to not review my emails on the weekends or in the evenings, because really almost everything can wait until the morning. What keeps you up at night, things that stress you out or cause you anxiety in your firm, in your business? The possibility of missing a court deadline. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? I actually found an area of the law that I love. I love waking up. You know, I hear people talk about, oh, no, it's Monday. I have to go to work because I know something exciting is going to happen. I really like my job. And last question is, if you were to describe yourself as any animal on Earth, what would that animal be and why? Uh, Probably a shark, because it's an apex predator. (laughs) Nice. That's great. I like that one. You know, everybody says panda or, you know, whatever. (laughs) That's that's, that's excellent. I'm a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Awesome. Well, David, this has been awesome. We cannot thank Thank you enough for coming Thank you so much. David, can you share with our listeners how we can get in touch with you? Should we want to know more about you? I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if maybe you could put a, a, a drop a a link in the show notes or something. That's probably the best Fantastic. way to Sounds you great. Your LinkedIn. Yeah. So great. Any, any Thanks again, David. practices out there need uh, employment help, David's there to help you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for coming on. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Have a great one. Bye. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. 
The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.